Amen, amen, amen. You may be seated. Man. Good stuff. Well, good morning, Fellowship High Chris. And happy Black History Month. And kick it off this month. Christianity finds its roots in both Asia and Africa. Many of our early church fathers and, and significant early Christian theologians were from Africa. When you think about the, the Greek New Testament, it was first translated into Latin in Africa. The first person to pin the concept of the Trinity was African. Augustine, uh, Tertullian were African when you hear those quotes. Um, if you would like to know more about um, just the contributions of Africa to the faith, I, I recommend you checking out this book, um, How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind. It would be a good read and something to start digging into over this month. Today, as I speak, we won't be using the Latin version of the text. Um, we'll be using the English version, and more specifically, we'll be using the New Living Translation uh, version of the scriptures. As I speak, we'll have the page numbers for the main passage on the screen, and those page numbers match up with the page numbers that are found in the blue Bibles that are in your seat. If you don't have a Bible of your own, then please take that one as our gift to you. If you have a Bible, but you don't have one that's easy to read, then please take that one as our gift to you. If you know someone who doesn't have a Bible, um, then please take that one and give it to them as a gift from the both of us. Today, we'll continue into our third week of our current sermon series, which is Living Hope. If you've um, not had an opportunity to catch the first two weeks of this sermon series, then you can go back and, and kind of get up to speed with us uh, either through the app or online um, for that. And I highly encourage it. This is a sermon series that is really relevant for where we live at in our time and culture. Um, this week, we'll continue on into the letter that Peter wrote to these believers. And so our focal passage for this morning is 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, and it's found on page 738 of those Bibles. And so let's, let's get there and go. Verse 9 of chapter 2 starts by saying this. But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people, your royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he has called you out of the darkness into the, his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if, you accu- even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. This is God's word. A Japanese soldier who hunkered down in the jungles of the Philippines for nearly 
three decades refusing to believe that World War II had ended, died in Tokyo a few Fridays ago. Hiro Onoda was 91 years old. In 1944, Onoda was sent to a small island in the western Philippines to spy on the U.S. forces in the area. Allied forces defeated the Japanese Imperial um, Army in the Philippines in the later stages of the war, but Onoda, a lieutenant, evaded capture. While most of the Japanese troops on the island withdrew or surrendered in the face of oncoming American forces, Onada and a few fellow holdouts hid in the jungles, dismissing messages saying that the war was over. For 29 years, he survived on food gathered in the jungle or stolen from local farmers. After losing his friends to various circumstances, Onada was eventually persuaded to come out of hiding in 1974. His former commanding officer traveled to see him and tell him he was released from his military duties. In his battered old army uniform, Onada handed over his sword for nearly 30 years after Japan had surrendered. He said every Japanese soldier was prepared for death, but as an intelligence officer, I was ordered to conduct guerrilla warfare and not to die. He said that I had to follow my orders as I was a soldier. He returned to Japan where he received a hero's welcome. But anger remained in the Philippines where he was blamed for multiple killings. The Philippines government pardoned him. But when he returned to the island in 1996, relatives of the people he was accused of killing gathered to demand compensation. Mr. Onada spent nearly a third of his life fighting a war that had already been decided. A third of his life was spent just barely surviving instead of thriving, exerting effort that had no cost and yielding no good. He stole and killed as a means to achieve an end that was already decided. While those in his tribe cheered and and overlooked the actions that he took, those whom he lived amongst were left angry and saddened. He spent a third of his life not listening, squandering his gifts and resources in misguided obedience. For most Christians, we spend a majority of our Christian walks like Hiro Onada, fighting battles that have already been won. We find comfort and achievement from the cheers of our tribe while leaving behind a trail of poor witness in unchanged lives and families and communities. We use our gifts and resources and time carrying out guerrilla warfare on the culture, never really seeing a change. If engaging in cultural guerrilla warfare is not our call, and hearing the the cheers of our tribes, regardless of the means, is not our aim, then what should we spend our time doing while we live as exiles? What does a win look like? What should our focus be? How will change come about in the world in which we live? As Peter addressed his readers, those who were chosen to live as elect 
exiles, those chosen to live amongst and near people who submitted their lives to a different master than them. He used this passage to begin to give clarity on how and what their life would look like in that culture. As we begin looking at this passage, it's interesting that when asked to give a reason for how he spent 30 years of his life, Mr. Onada went to his identity, which also defined how he would live. It's also interesting that he was willing to give up once he lost his friends and community. He was a Japanese soldier who played the role of an intelligence officer. One of my prayers is that through out this series, one of the things that we would come to recognize is the importance that identity plays in how we live out God's plan for our life. Our identity plays such a huge role in that. The importance of knowing who you are plays such a big role in how we go about showing others the goodness of God. As Peter explains this, he starts off by telling them who they are not. Verse 9 starts off with this key phrase. It says, but you are not like that. In Scripture, when we are reading, whenever we see a but that starts off with Scripture or therefore, it should cue us to read up in the passage and ask ourselves, what is therefore, therefore? If it starts off with a but, we should ask ourselves, what is the author trying to contrast in the Scripture in which I'm reading? And it's important that we read up in order to get a fuller understanding of what's being expressed in this passage. Between verses 8 through 10, Peter gives three denials of their identity and seven affirmations of of their identity. In Peter's example, I hope we see the beauty in focusing more on who we are than who we are not. So let's look at verse 8 of chapter 2, and this is what it says. It says, and he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word, and so they meet the fate that was planned for them. What do we know about the Peter who are not like the readers of Peter's letter? Uh, the, the readers of Peter's letter. What do we know about them? We know three things. One, those who were not followers of God, and the culture showed it through these ways. First, they rejected Christ. There are people who have rejected Christ. That's what Peter says about them. The, Peter, the people who are unlike the readers of this letter were people who rejected Christ. And secondly, they were living disobediently. Because they rejected Christ, they also rejected his message and disobeyed God's word. And thirdly, they were facing judgment. Because they have rejected Christ and lived disobedient to God's word, they have literally assigned condemnation and judgment to who they are. That has become a part of their identification. That is a faith that Peter said lied ahead of them, but that is a faith that is different than what God had planned for the Peter, uh, for the people in which Peter was writing. There's too many P's in here. Peter's readers have accepted Christ. 
They are actively trying to live out God's word. God has a different ending in mind for them. He also has different identity traits in mind for them. And and so Peter spends verses 9 and 10 telling the seven identifying characteristics of those who have accepted Christ. And, And so knowing these truths about God's people would help them proclaim God's excellency. And so here are the seven things that Peter points out in verses 9 through 10. And so the first one is, he said that they were a chosen people. Now, Peter, using this term, throws it all the way back to what God called the nation of Israel as he was bringing them out of Egypt. Israel was God's physically chosen people. To physically be in the land meant to be in the promises of God for the nation of Israel. Now, Peter uses this term that was once off limits to describe this group of people who they uh, who were this way spiritually, what Israel was physically. And so he's using this term and he's saying to accept Jesus as your savior, as your Messiah, as your king was to be in Jesus and share not only in his death, but also in his resurrection. And there. And therefore, Peter was saying out of all the people on earth, out of all the people that God could have chosen, that he chose them to represent him. Now, what are the implications of this? It meant they didn't have to try to live to impress God. It meant that that they didn't have to live to try to gain a spot with God because they already had it. You know, competition does some strange things to us. Yes, it is true that competition does bring out the best of us, but it can also bring out the worst of us, and it can make us forget who the true enemy is. It can cause us to forget that every person is made in the image of God. We don't have to battle for a spot on God's island because he has already chosen us. When we forget that, we can find ourselves jockeying for positions, looking for ways to make ourselves look better. He said they were chosen people. Then he said they were royal priests. Now, in the Old Testament, the Levitical priesthood were the only priests that existed. But Peter adds an additional um, descriptor on the front. The word royal means belonging to the king or, or an official royal representative. So the, the role of the a Levitical priest was this. A priest helps connect people to God. That's one role. And I want you to hear this. A priest helps people connect to God. And the second role of a priest is to help mediate God's blessing to creation. Let's put this together. Those who are in Christ are people who have been chosen by the king to connect people with him and to mediate his blessing to creation. Those who are in Christ are people who were chosen by the king to help connect people to him and to mediate blessing to all of creation. Let me say that one more time. Those who are in Christ are people who are chosen by the king to help connect people to God 
and to help mediate God's blessing to creation. You being in Christ was God choosing and, 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 and it was not something that you earned. And so this this role, this scripture on the front of here wasn't a point of pride because there was not anything that you gained on your own and anything that you achieved on your own. But it was God choosing you and it spoke more about who you belong to rather than something that you've achieved. And so it was supposed to be not only this humbling thing, but also this privileged thing at the same time to be called a royal priest. And so all this goes to say that we should be doing more connecting and blessing instead of shaming and condemning. They were chosen people. They were royal priests. They were a holy nation. Now, with Israel, in order to be a priest, you had to be born into this one tribe. And those were the only people they got to serve in this way. So what Peter was doing is he took this once physically limited role and he expanded it to this spiritual communal role. That now everybody who was in Christ had an opportunity to play this position of priest. Everybody had the opportunity to do what? Connect people with God and mediate his blessing to all of creation. Everyone who was in Christ now had this ability. It was no longer specified to this little select group over here, but it was now given to everyone. So together, those chosen by God will connect people to God and you were called out and you were called to live amongst the exiles, not to conquer them, but to serve. God is the conqueror. We are his servants. This means that that you don't have to desire or fight for a promotion because everyone has the same status. When when your next promotion doesn't matter, man, it's freeing. When you're content with where you're at, when you see that you have God's best right now, it's freeing. They were chosen people. They were royal priests. They were a holy nation. They were God's possession. This, this word literally means to make a circle around. What, it, what it's saying is when, when God makes something and then you surround it with a circle um, indicating that you own it. The word speaks of the unique, private, personal ownership of every saint by God. Each saint is God's unique possession just as if they were the only person of all creation. Each saint, it it belongs to him. And here's what it says. John 10, 10, 28 says this. It says that whoever belongs to Christ is his. And no one can snatch that person out of his hand, which means this. It means that they could never lose their position with God or better yet, God would never lose them. Why is that important? It provides security and it should provide security for all of us as well. And here's a beautiful image as a part of this. God is talking through Peter to this group of people. And this is a beautiful example and model of our concept of adoption. In some states in the United States, when you adopt a child and you write that child into your will, once that child has been made a part of the family inheritance, the adoptive parents can never remove that child from the will. 
Now, they can remove their birth children from the will, but some states have it set up that once adoptive parents have written in that adoptive child until the family inheritance, they can never be removed. And that's what God is saying right here to these people as they live in this difficult circumstance. And that's what he's saying to you this morning. That once you're in, you're in. They were a chosen people. They were royal priests. They were a holy nation. They were God's possession. They were light bearers. God wanted to dwell amongst the Israelites as this showed that he was, uh, they were his possession. And he did so by dwelling in the temple and, and in the tabernacle until the sins of Israel grew so great that he could no longer be intimate with them in this way. And then the presence of God departed. But in the church, God doesn't just dwell amongst those who believe in him. He dwells in each and every individual believer. He has promised to never leave us. The church is what it is so they can do what God has called it to do. Essentially, the church's purpose is the same as Israel. The Great Commission tells us the means that we are to use. The church is to be the instrument through which the light of God reaches those who still sit in spiritual darkness. Our job is not to conquer them or wage war on them, but to do what the phrase show the goodness of God literally means. That phrase literally means to tell abroad the gracious dealings and the glorious attributes of God. So this group of people whom God has chosen for his purpose and his function, who find their security in him, are charged with living amongst and near those who reject God so that those who rebel against God can continuously hear how great God is and how gracious God is. They were chosen people. They were royal priests. They were holy nation. They were God's possession. They were light bearers. They were a blended family. To understand these next two, you have to understand the Old Testament book um, of Hosea. Now, here's a story that is wild. Absolutely wild. I don't know if I had it in me. <laughs> Hosea was the Old Testament prophet that God told to go marry this prostitute named Gomer. And he told him to go marry this prostitute named Gomer as a show to what the nation of Israel was doing to God. So God was the one taking care of them, but they were giving all their time and attention and resources and the best of them to idols and false gods. So as Gomer cheated on Hosea, um, she would get pregnant. So God had Hosea name the kids so that Gomer would know that Hosea knew what was going on. He was not fooled that these kids were not his. And so one kid came out and he named her, uh, named them, um, not my people. I think he was kind of bold and, and direct and, and trying to tell Gomer, like, <laughs> that child ain't mine. I'm that daddy to pay for both. Um, but um, he was trying to tell him. And so, even though she got pregnant through an extramarital affair, Hosea still treated that son like as if he was his own by birth. God is saying, that's what I do. 
Like the father or mother in a blended family, I accept children that I did not give birth to and treat them like they were mine from the beginning. Peter was telling uh, his readers that you may have started off as a rejecter, but once you're in Christ, God is going to treat you like you always believe, like you always obey. He won't treat you like a stepchild. He's going to treat you like his own. Then they were a chosen people. They were a royal priest. They were a holy nation. They were God's possession. They were light bearers. They, they were a blended family, and they were forgiven. Hosea's uh, daughter uh, was given the name No Mercy. Peter told the people that they were once uh, destined for the same faith as those that were currently rejecting God in which they lived around, but because they had been forgiven, now they had a change in course. Um, these two together were supposed to be uh, and, and help them keep humble and, and so that they would believe that there was always a way out, that everyone around them was always capable of change and transformation, that their neighbors who may at this time be the biggest heathens that they knew, the biggest rejectors of Christ that they knew, may one day be his biggest proclaimers. Peter then sends, spends the remaining two verses of our focal passage this morning saying, well, how is this going to look? How are you going to go about doing this thing? And he gave them two guiding principles. The first one was abstaining from worldly desires. Christians are to abstain from sinful desires, not only for their own spiritual well-being, but also in order to maintain an effective testimony before unbelievers. Such desires cannot uh, be confined to just sexual desires or, or, or sins of the body, but also include social sins like slander and envy and, and self-centered living and unwillingness to sacrifice or worldly goals or being preoccupied with material things. And man, these things are easy to get caught up into. They're easy to get caught up into. The true war is not with unbelievers. It's between us and the desires of the flesh, which our demonic enemy likes to use to draw us away from obedience with God. The second guiding principle Peter gave them of how to live this thing out in a way that proclaims God's excellency, he said, hey, live honorably. A positive Christian lifestyle is a powerful means of convicting the world of his sin. You don't have to shame or condemn folk. Live it out before them. An honorable life is made up of both good character and good deeds. Before the critical eyes of, of slanderous people and their false accusations, the good deeds and godly character of believers can glorify God and win others to belief. The great commission is what sends us out, and the great commandment is what draws others near to us. So what do we gain from living in this way? First of all, we gain nothing. Mr. Onada wasted 30 years fighting an enemy that didn't exist in a war that had already been won in hopes of receiving a hero's welcome when he returned home. For us in Christ, our morality earns us nothing before God. We already have all the promises of God through the finished work of Christ, the true hero of this story. Following God is not a 401k plan. 
We don't serve God to get. If we only follow God and use him as a full 1K plan, uh, thinking that the way we sacrifice is the way he's going to pay us back, then we have just moved ourselves into a system of works and out of grace. If we are serving God with receipts, thinking this is what God owes me because of what I've done, then we're no longer living by grace, but we're living by a system of works, and you will find yourself still in slavery, slaving to performance as if the war hadn't been won. It's over. Are you serving or being obedient in hopes of keeping good karma? Hoping that because you gave the guy on the corner a couple of dollars when you saw him with the sign that if you ever run out of gas, somebody will stop and give you gas. You will you will exhaust yourself if you are having that attitude towards serving God. What do we have to gain from living like this? Everything. God is glorified by our good deeds, and the onlooking world gets a front row seat to the God of the universe. When we live a life of good deeds and good character, where our security is found and our identity is in Christ, the war becomes a symphony of praise that is used by God to transform natives into exiles, rejectors into acceptors, and hostiles into brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're here this morning and you're constantly feeling like you're at war, you're constantly feeling like you're, you're fighting a battle and you're tired, I want to let you know where we're found. True rest is only found in Christ. You get that when you have rooted and grounded yourself in the love of Christ. And, and you do that by what we call stepping over the line of faith. When it's his work alone that brings us security and him alone that we see as the hero of the story. That's when we find rest. You can try as hard as you want to and and, and you will always fall short. It's only in him that we find rest. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then I want to give you the opportunity to do that this morning. I'm going to pray in a second. No special words, no special order of words. Just a prayer of thanksgiving. If you make that decision today, then I welcome you to take communion with us in a few minutes also. Manny, when he comes up, will explain what that's all about. If you have trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, Let me challenge you with this. We are told to hold our Christian brothers and sisters accountable to living as elect exiles of both good deeds and good character. That doesn't mean shaming them, but it does mean loving them enough to want to see a restoration of both vertical and horizontal relationships. Let's spend less time trying to convict unbelievers, expecting them to live as mature believers. And let's spend more time doing life with them in a way that speaks to the goodness and grace of God.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example set forth in your son. As we read this encouragement from Peter to your people, I pray that we would find our security in you. That we would hang our war bows. That we would enjoy the promises that we have in you. That we would make space in our lives to demonstrate both godly character and godly deeds for the onlooking world. I pray, Father, that we will find our security not in our performance, but in the fact that we've shared in the death of your son, Jesus Christ, and also in his resurrection. We thank you for being counted as one of your own, your unique possession. I pray that if there's anyone here, Father, that does not know you, that today would be the day they make that decision. Today will be the day that they stop trusting in themselves, that they, um, they step out of the jungle. They lay down their sword, and they realize that you've already won. I pray, Father, that we would be a people that collectively Shine your light within our workplaces, our homes, our communities. And that transformation would come by this group of people who demonstrate the grace and goodness of God. So we love you. We thank you. And we praise you in your darling son Jesus name. Amen.